The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 13th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Baskets of deplorables. Baskets of deplorables. Sestas. Sestas di detor agaria. In Basque. Oh, oh. This could be worse than Obama's clinging to their guns and clinging to their religion. This could be the 47%, Mitt Romney's 47% remark of this campaign, except it won't be. Let's figure out why. Okay, let's go to Obama's remark. Like Hillary, he was speaking to liberal donors, and he was trying to explain the motivations of the supporters of the other guy. Like Hillary. It's never a good ground to tread upon. So Obama's remark was somewhat backed up by evidence, but you really could persuasively argue that there's a lot more to gun ownership and religiosity than just an economic downturn. Uh, It's pretty much the kind of argument that makes sense to people who want to nod their heads and agree with the argument in the first place. But here's the biggest difference between what Obama said and what Hillary said, that there were still at that time a lot of gun owners and a lot of religious people who could have come over to the Obama camp. It didn't hurt him. He won the election. But he was still potentially polarizing gettable voters. And the same is true, very true, with Romney's vilification of the 47% of Americans who didn't pay taxes. And that hurt because you could, in fact, the Democrats did, put forth all these sympathetic-seeming people like military members and retirees who were in the 47%, had a federal tax rate of effectively zero. Again, he was offending his potential voters. But the thing about lobbing an insult at half of Trump voters is that they're Trump voters, and also that you're only insulting half of them. Now, Trump has countered this by saying, no, 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 those aren't my voters. Here are my voters. Our support comes from every part of America and every walk of life. We have the support of cops and soldiers, carpenters and welders, the young and the old, and millions of working class families who just want a better future and a good job. But none of those things are the opposite of racist or the opposite of anti-immigrant. She called his supporters anti-immigrant. He counters with, no, they're blue collar. Those things aren't opposites. They don't have to be the same, but it's like saying, you're bilingual. No, I'm not. I'm a Taurus. You know, so Trump saying, my supporters aren't racist. They have families. It doesn't seem like a non-racist person's understanding of racism. Anyway, I don't know if they're racist. I try not even to say that Trump is a bigot and a racist. I stay away from those terms. I just talk about what we know and what we can prove. Like, let's take anti-Islamic. That's just a fact. There was a public opinion poll where they asked Clinton supporters and Trump supporters, do you have a favorable view of Islam? Clinton supporters, 66% said yes. Trump supporters, 16% said yes, we have a favorable view of Islam. Baskets of deplorables, not a good moment for Hillary. I guess it could hurt her, but I think it's way overblown. Now, as far as the pneumonia cover-up, I think that's way overblown, and I guess I'm wrong. New York Times, main headline, Hillary Clinton is set back by decision to keep illness secret. I'd argue she's more set back by that infection in her lungs, but okay. And here's uh, Bloomberg's D.C. bureau chief, Megan Murphy, appearing on MSNBC. It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue because it's legitimized what had been always seen as sort of a far-right issue, a fringe issue, these conspiracies over our health. 
It legitimized the conspiracy. Do you know what the conspiracy theories are? That Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's, that she has HIV, that she has numerous seizures a day. They said that on the Sean Hannity show. Drudge headlines throughout the day was this group of doctors, a group who is uh, skeptical that HIV causes AIDS, by the way, saying that her health disqualifies her from office. But the more mainstream, reasonable, cooling saucer type take is, sure, 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 the conspiracies are crazy. But it does show that she covers up as an instinct that she rarely discloses. Well, let's think about this. Let's think about if she had done the opposite and she hadn't collapsed. Wouldn't that seem weird? In fact, don't you think that over the last year, as she and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have all been campaigning throughout the country, all these septuagenarians or near septuagenarians that we've decided one of them will be our president, don't you think it's likely that one of them got sick? I haven't seen any disclosures about their illness before there had to be. I think that's their right. What if that she has pneumonia, but she's doing everything as she normally would press release had gone out? Would she have gotten a lot of points for disclosure or would she have just given rise to the cottage industry of why'd she tell us that or what's really going on or why does she want to seem like such a hero that she's aggrandizing her boldness in the face of illness. You really can't trust Hillary Clinton. So on the show today, I have on Hillary's campaign manager, Robbie Mook. And I have to say, I don't rip his face off. Usually, if you're in the media and you book Robbie Mook, you want to rip his face off. Or it's expected that you do a little face ripping off of Robbie Mook. But since I honestly don't think that the campaign is so much to answer for with deplorables or pneumonia, I couldn't gin up some ire that I don't actually have. I did a follow-up, maybe two follow-ups, and do three or four or five follow-ups. Anyway, you'll hear. We'll see what you think. And then, inspired by the baskets of deplorables comment, a conversation about a basket-focused activity that America found deplorable, or at least ignorable. Ladies and gentlemen, the great highlight discussion of Aught 16. But first, here's Robbie Mook. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Joining me now is Robbie Mook, who is the campaign manager for uh, Hillary, or I should say Clinton Kane 2016. Hello, Robbie. Hello. So thanks for doing this. And I will not quote right-wing media. I'll start with a David Axelrod quote. Antibiotics can take care of pneumonia. What's the cure for an unhealthy penchant for privacy that repeatedly creates unnecessary problems? Do you cop to any of that? <laughs> You know, what's what's amazing to me in this entire situation is that Donald Trump has never released any serious medical information whatsoever. He refuses to release his taxes. Uh, he refuses to release the donors to his foundation, whereas Hillary Clinton put out a very serious medical letter that not only detailed her current health, but her health history. She's released her taxes for over three decades, you know, every donor to her foundation, and yet people are saying that she's the one with a transparency problem. So I think the problem here is 
that people need to step back and take a more balanced look at both of these candidates. But look, here's the deal. She was, well, I should say, she is one of the hardest workers I've ever met in my entire life, let alone in politics. She was diagnosed uh, with pneumonia on Friday. She decided to, to power through it. She did all of her events on Friday. She did all of her events on Saturday. And on Sunday, she got overheated at the 9-11 event. It was important to her to be there. She made the decision to go. She decided to, you know, take a rest for a few days uh, on recommendation of her doctor. I think if she had her choice, she would just get right back out there. That's how she is. But she's going to mend up and, uh, and get back on the playing field. I have to say, I and others in the office have suffered from, I don't know if it's the exact same thing, but we've all had a really bad bug going around here the last few days. So I feel like I personally have been in this situation where I've had to make a decision about whether to stay home and rest or get back into the office. And that's all this is. And I think people, you know, get get whipped up about this. I guess in a campaign, you can legitimately say we're doing it better than Trump is doing and our actual doctor is better than his gastroenterologist. And your job is to win the campaign. But are you saying that there should be no concerns about the overall issue that, you know, if you look at the TikTok of what was disclosed and when your candidate said, I'm feeling great. And then a couple hours later, it came out she wasn't, you know, people could say, hey, this is a usual pattern. Is that legitimate or totally illegitimate? Well, I think what's, I, look, I think what's legitimate is on Friday when they told her she had pneumonia, she decided to power through it. Clearly, you know, she needed some downtime and she's getting that now. Yes, there was 90 minutes between the time she decided to leave that event. And when we got the statement out outlining the exact, you know, medical uh, diagnosis, could we have gotten that out faster? Yes. In retrospect, would I have done that? Yes. But what is puzzling to me perpetually on this campaign is that we are being criticized for 90 minutes in terms of releasing the exact details of why she wasn't feeling well, whereas Donald Trump for 500 days now still has not released a single serious piece of information about his health. I, I don't think objectively that's a fair situation. All right, let's move on to a, b- a bigger, broader issue. Um, swing voters this year, there are a few left, and they are a little different than what swing voters usually look like. Like the Journal and NBC polled them, and they found that almost half of them want the Republicans to control Congress, twice as many as want the Democrats. Does the fact that the potential swing voter is more conservative, does that show up in any, not just messaging, but strategy? I mean, normally what you do is say there are all these voters who could sit home. We have to get out the vote. We have to go to churches or wherever you go to uh, in Democratic circles. Maybe it's different this time around. Maybe it's not appealing to a disaffected, unplugged in person. It's convincing a normal Republican to uh, vote Democrat? You know, that's a great question. I I think, again, it is dangerous on any campaign, but I think particularly a presidential campaign, to narrow cast uh, your message and your campaigning too much. This election is, for us strategically, is not just about persuading independents, independent-leaning Republicans and Republicans to support Secretary Clinton. This is also about reminding more traditionally uh, Democratic voters, uh, especially young people, about why their vote is important. This isn't just about persuading of a small segment. It's about inspiring literally hundreds of millions of people to turn out and vote. 
campaign tools and technologies allow us to target voters more precisely than ever before. And that's enormously beneficial, and that helps make the time of our staff and our volunteers much more efficient. But that doesn't mean that we're saying, you know, a few things to a few people or a bunch of disparate things to a very micro-targeted audience. It, it, it means that we're communicating the same message again and again. Now, Robbie, I know that you're a young man old enough to be president, but just barely, just by a year. But you've been uh, working campaigns for a long time. Is this an unusual campaign in that normally when you work a campaign, the opponent says something once every couple days, if you're lucky, that you jump on? But there's almost too much to jump on with Donald Trump. Is this the first time in a campaign where the real discipline has been what to ignore that normally would be the sort of thing that you point to over and over again? I think that that's accurate. Uh, Donald Trump says something so controversial and demonstrates such a deep lack of temperament to have the job every day that it is hard. And it's easy to chase the soccer ball all around the field and never kick a goal. And so it's important that we do remain focused here. But the other thing I will say that has changed enormously over the last few years is technology and the media environment have created a situation where the news cycle is much faster than it used to be. <coughs> media consumption is... is Speaking uh, of consumption, was that, the, was that the pneumonia rearing its head? <laughs> <laughs> that is. You can get a sound expert to diagnose, uh, <laughs> you know, what it really is. Um, uh, no, it's I, and the media environment's become much more diffuse, so it is harder than ever to communicate something. This isn't, you know, this isn't a decade or two decades ago where the vast majority of Americans are consuming three or four outlets a night. So the things, though, that you're going to jump on and make more hay out of are things that go to temperament as opposed to a policy that the experts, like to me, 45% tariffs, can't find a good expert saying that would be good for the economy. But I've heard much less about that than on issues of temperament, as you were just talking about. Look, this is where you're hitting the nail on the head. I think it would be easy to chase Donald Trump around on any number of issues. I think his economic policies are a disaster. He would start a trade war, which would be devastating for our economy. But I think the election is about something much more fundamental for people. Uh, our national security situation is more complex than it's ever been before. The partisan environment is more gridlocked than it's ever been before. So I think this election is really about electing a leader who can navigate a lot of very complex situations and have the steady, steadiness and temperament to make good choices. So, yeah, I think it would be a mistake to get down in the weeds. Um, but as you point out, that's not to say that uh, we have deep disagreements with Donald Trump on a variety of, of policy matters. Last week was that NBC-sponsored forum on the Intrepid, and the structure of it was such that Donald Trump got to hear things that Hillary Clinton said, could say anything, and she didn't get to uh, have the same favor returned to her. Was it a mistake to agree to that format? You know, in any forum, somebody's got to go first, and somebody's got to go second, and there was a coin toss, and... Uh, the coin toss dictated who got to go first. So I, 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 if there's one lesson I've learned in politics, uh, luck has uh, sometimes more to do with the outcome than we'd like. And I think 
uh, when deciding who speaks first or or second, for that matter, in any forum, uh, you know, luck luck unfortunately has to play uh, a part. Are you going to do any more forums like that before the actual debates? We're open to doing more, and I know we've been looking at a number of them. Uh, I don't know which uh, Trump himself would be willing to participate in, but we're certainly open to looking at more. In that, one of the things that were was criticized, heavily criticized, was that your candidate took so many questions, not just from the moderator, but a member of the audience, about the emails. Now, my question to you is different from maybe one that you always get. Can you, do you think your campaign can do anything to put those questions to an end? Not totally, but enough so. I just am trying to anticipate that perhaps your answer will be, well, these are unfair questions. And then I could come back with something like, yeah, but they're not going away. So what do you do to make those questions, by and large, go away? Well, first of all, she has said repeatedly that using uh, the single account was a mistake. And if she could go back, she absolutely would have used two different accounts. Um, and she's taken full responsibility for the entire matter. So that's that's an important piece. I think the second important piece is that the FBI, as we all know, looked into this uh, quite a bit. And the judgment of the career professionals uh, at the FBI and at the, state, at the uh, Justice Department was that um, they don't believe there was uh, criminal wrongdoing um, and any deliberate wrongdoing on her part. So... If in that regard, it, it is concluded. This is a closed and a finished matter. I think what will not end is the desire by Republicans, and especially Republicans on the House side, on the Hill, to continue to relitigate this when they don't get the answer they want. So when the FBI or the Justice Department doesn't tell them what they want to hear, they, they want to keep relitigating. I don't know what more... There is to say here, and I think the voters do at this point have all the information, and I'm a little bit at a loss to imagine what uh, what can still be asked and what can still be answered, but uh, I'm sure the Republicans will come up with some novel approach on this. All right. The last thing I want to ask you about are these debates. Have you cast the role of Donald Trump? Will it be one person that she's debating against, or will you have different iterations of uh, a stand-in for her opponent in these debates? You know, we have a team of people that are working with her to prepare for these debates. We're really lucky to have uh, help from really, really talented folks. And um, I think that that preparation process will continue to evolve as she does it. So we're, you know, we're not locking ourselves into doing this one way or another. And just promise me you're not going to do that expectations thing where your campaign says, I don't know, he's a great debater. I don't know if, he, I don't, I don't know if she'll be able to beat him. <laughs> I think I think it is fair to say that she is entering one of the most unpredictable debate environments ever. It'll certainly be uh, certainly be unpredictable, and we'll all just have to tune in. <laughs> yeah, I think seventy eight percent of people said they are going to tune in, so that's good. Good for ratings. Good for you. Robbie Mook is the campaign manager of uh, Clinton Kane twenty sixteen. Thank you so much. Thank you. tell a lot about a man by his bobbleheads. I have three. I have Carl Castle, the Fruit Brute, and a highlight player that I acquired in the Miami Fronton. 
Before you're asking, how do you even get a highlight bobblehead? I said, you go to the Miami Fronton. We got to answer, what is highlight? Highlight is a sport invented in the Basque region of Spain, played mostly in Cuba, South America, and some parts of Miami. Players have baskets. They're called cestas. They throw a small, hard ball against a wall. It's a lot like racquetball, but you don't hit the ball. You catch it in this basket, and then you throw it. It speeds exceeding 100 miles an hour. And spectators can bet on the outcome. It's pretty simple. It's pretty difficult. And for a time, it was pretty popular. And then not. And now, not at all. Ryan Suffren is the director of an ESPN 30 for 30 short, What the Hell Happened to High Lie? Hello, Ryan. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. There's this thing called the historical fallacy, which is to think that things happened were inevitable, that they were going to happen. And so we live in a culture where professional sports, the major professional sports are so successful, basketball, baseball, football, and some sports uh, waned in popularity like boxing and horse racing. And we can explain them. But take me to an inflection point in Highlight where a good case could have been made that this is the sport of the future. And what would, when would that have been, and what would the case have been? Well, I think at that point in time is the early to mid-'80s, because that is really when the sport was, was starting to show the ability to just get out of its kind of niche culture of South Florida, or Florida specifically. And you started to see highlight grow, uh, particularly in the, in the Northeast, where it was in Connecticut, it was in Rhode Island, and it was really being embraced similarly, mainly because of its uh, of this attraction of being able to go and gamble. But you could see that there were plans to really try to take this to Chicago, to take this out west, to really find new markets to grow the sport. And what was interesting, it was also right at the time that ESPN, this little startup that's broadcasting sports, around the clock, and there's frontons that the ESPN executives are going to, and yet they scoffed at wanting anything to do with Highlight because at that moment in time, the vice nature of gambling was something that was a big turnoff. And so you have all the makings of a really potentially entertaining sport, given that you have this speed, you have this danger component. And I think if there was an opportunity to capture that, with how we capture sports now, particularly with just being able to have high-speed cameras and, and just amazing editing, real-time editing, I think the sport of highlight could be a sport that would be very entertaining and could certainly grow outside of it just being dependent upon the gambling. You know, the culture at large was a far cry from where we're at right now, which completely embraces gambling, whether it's fantasy football or, you know, how many casino opportunities are available to us now that aren't just in Nevada or Atlantic City. Though the gambling has also probably cut both ways in that a lot of people have always thought the very nature that it's human beings playing the sport, that it must be rigged. And anytime you lose your bet, when your player who you've been betting on loses, you always think, well, it must be rigged. Though, of course, when your player wins, you you never you never claim that it's a it's a rigged game. So it's usually more. Well, there were, but yeah, but there were scandals involving Highlight with throwing matches and what's called fixed to win. Where would just the uh, since the guys knew each other, they would uh, make sure that no one went too long without a victory. What I found in talking to some of the 
some of the better players, certainly American players as well, the perception of the fixes far out, far, far exceeded the amount of fixes that actually took place. And I think it's more the loser's lament of you not winning and blaming it on, on the nature of the game and that it must be fixed than that actually happening because it is a pretty tricky game to fix. It's unlike football where if you can get to the quarterback, you can fix a football game. You can control the outcome of that game pretty easily. In a highlight match, there can either be 8 to 16 different players all competing against each other and getting all of those guys to be in on fixing a match and, and in doing so risking their career if caught for what would be a pretty small amount of money. And this is all the education I got from these guys who, you know, they're professional athletes who were committed to being the best that they could be at this sport. And so, of course, they scoffed when anyone, especially out in public, would recognize them and say, hey, you threw that match. That's quite an insult to somebody who, who you know, does this for a living day in and day out. Ryan Suffren is the director of What the Hell Happened to Highlight. You will find the answer there. It does not even include Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang killing a Highlight executive. That wasn't good for the sport. It was most the answer is mostly about about strikes and uh, the fact that people still thought the name was Jay Ali. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. The U.S. News and World Report ranking of colleges came out. This is a peculiar institution, the U.S. News and World Report ranking of colleges. Kids, kids, U.S. News and World Report used to be what they called a magazine. And their selling point was that we're a better magazine than Time and Newsweek, which history proved that that was a pretty good argument to make. It was just the grounds that they made it on was we're a better magazine because Time and Newsweek, they're so fluffy and we're the serious periodical. Anyway, time's kind of gone. Newsweek is now the Daily Beast and US News and World Report is pretty much just a bunch of lists. Another analogy would be the college rankings are to U.S. News and World Reports what the Simpsons were to the Tracy Ullman show. So every year they come out, and I do two things. One, I check to see where my college is. And two, I laugh to myself that anyone could think that my college is that good. Emory is a fine institution. I will say Emory is probably a really good institution. When I went there, it was a fine institution. It's gotten better for sure. Then I saw the rankings. They said Emory is tied with Georgetown. Let me tell you something about Georgetown. I was going to apply to Georgetown, but I did not because Georgetown is too academically rigorous. You have to know how to speak a foreign language when you go to Georgetown. They have all these requirements at Georgetown. It just seemed like I didn't want to go there. It was just a better school than Emory. And then I check the rankings and I see that UNC Chapel Hill is behind Emory and UVA is behind Emory. It's really hard to be a public college and get up in those rankings because part of being a public college is you have to take in and accept students from your state. And one of the ways to rise in the rankings is to be really selective and reject students from your state. But come on, UVA, the school of Jefferson and Dickerson and Bowie. What does Emory have? Kai Rizdahl? Me? Goddamn me? Emory also has Adam Richman, friend of mine. We had a lot of good times in college. He's the guy from Man vs. Food for a little while there. It looked like food was winning. Hey, been there, brother. 
Richmond threatened to kill me once. Long story. But my point is that, yeah, Emory has six Pulitzer Prize winners, but only one who graduated in the last 70 years. Their most famous guy is Adam Richmond. They also had Lee Galkin. Who's Lee Galkin? He's a friend of mine. Here's a direct quote from my friend Lee Galkin in college. I know somewhere out there in America, there is a dog that is smarter than I am. And you know what? He was right. But let me say this, especially if you have Lee Galkin as your lawyer, do not worry. He is a capable, smart guy. In fact, he got into the 20th best college in America. Just keep in mind that he's a little stupider than a very smart dog, the smartest dog. Most people I met at Emory are like Lee. They're really competent. They're capable. They're good at being things like lawyers or finance guys. Occasionally medicine. They do medicine. More marketing than medicine, though. But the stuff they do, if they get it wrong, nobody dies. Whereas my girlfriend went to Carnegie Mellon University. Here's who I meet from Carnegie Mellon. Computer geniuses. Top flight architects. They had 12 Nobel laureates who went there. They have all these engineers who went there. Actually, I never met an engineer. The engineers seem to live underground, but they do make bridges and things that never collapse. Carnegie Mellon has amazing actors like Josh Gad, who played the snowman in Frozen, and that guy who played the werewolf in True Blood. Joe, you know, the abs guy. Joe, you know that guy. It's a great acting school. Who else went to Carnegie Mellon? Carol Channing, Ted Danson, Holly Hunter, Sherry Jones, Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, Zachary Quinto, the composer Stephen Swartz, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, and of course, just guest, Rene Aubergenois. Andy Warhol once said, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Maybe he got this idea surrounded by all these soon-to-be famous people at Carnegie Mellon where he attended college. Carnegie Mellon was somehow behind Emory. It makes no sense. Yeah, Atlanta's better than Pittsburgh. And yeah, Emory, you got nice class sizes and a nice climbing wall and the rec center is full, full of all the Coke products. That's good, you know, but it's just not a better school. How do you even determine what's a better school? So I went to the rankings. How U.S. News calculated the 2017 best college rankings. Here's the first sentence. The host of intangibles that make up the college experience can't be measured by a series of data points. Two things. One, the host of intangibles. That seems worse than the basket of deplorables. And two, your first sentence just said that we can't do what we're doing. It is an admission that the only reason anyone ever even says the words U.S. News and World Reports is a thing that can't be done. But they go on to do it. They have a formula. Here's what... Most people ask the layman, hey, U.S. News and World Reports came out with their ranking of best colleges. So after they say, wait, does that magazine still exist? You say, well, it doesn't matter. It's a brand. Okay, what are, the, what, what are they trying to say by best college? And I think the layman would say, well, you know, best. All right, but what do you mean by best? Their academic reputation is the best, right? I don't know if it means they have the smartest students or the best faculties. Just academically, what you find in the classroom is the academically most rigorous. It has the best academic reputation. Wrong. Academic reputation is less than a quarter of the U.S. news score. Equally high is graduation rates. All right. Really high up there, faculty resources, which is to say how much you pay your professors. All right. Student spending. That's 7.5% of the U.S. news calculation, this data point that can't measure a college. Alumni giving is 5% of the final score. This makes no sense. Alumni giving is already priced into a bunch of the other stuff I read, like student spending and faculty resources. Guidance counselor ranking is counted. 
They send out a survey to America's guidance counselors, 2,000 guidance counselors. Guess what percent of the guidance counselors actually care enough to send back the survey? 9%. Selectivity of the colleges, that counts for 12%. Want to rise up in the U.S. news rankings? Just induce more unqualified students to submit an application because that means you have a better school. Do you know what the most selective school in the country is? There's actually a tie. Stanford, which makes sense. And Alice Lloyd College. <laughs> yes, Alice Lloyd College of Pippa Passes, Kentucky, apparently has the same 5% acceptance rate as Stanford. I went back to past years. This just seems like a misprint, which is an indictment, perhaps, of the impossible data point, baskets of deplorable, host of intangibles argument that U.S. News is making. You know what, what colleges have the highest acceptance rate? UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso, 100%. UTEP, home of the thick envelope. Akron, 97%. What do you think is better or worse, depending on how you look at it? At least UTEP could say, look, you apply, you get in. We're here to educate you. Akron says that, except every hundred students, there are three we just can't take. And that means everyone else who is at Akron, they knew that they weeded out the bottom 3%, but that's it. Kentucky, good school prominent national school has an acceptance rate of 91%. I looked it up. When your acceptance rate is higher than anyone who's shot free throws for you over the last 20 years, the last Kentucky Wildcat to have a free throw percentage above Kentucky's acceptance rate was Travis Ford in 1994. The state of Kansas, the three biggest schools in Kansas are Kansas, Wichita State, and Kansas State. Their acceptance rates are 93, 95, and 95%. Mama, I got accepted to KU. Well, of course you did. You sent your application in, did didn't you? I mean, the return address was correct, right? I mean, we're only talking about getting into the top state university. We're not talking about something like passing your driver's test. Of course you got in. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be so unaccepting. Then again, I went to Emory. Acceptance rate 24. Overall 20. Pain in the ass alumnus complaining on their podcast that their alma mater is too high. We are number one. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson insists on disclosing that she is planning on coming down with a case of turf toe in the near future. If Mary Wilson cannot serve as just producer, Chris Berube will step in. He is busy beating back on the internet rumors that his Canadian heritage disqualifies him from this job. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is wondering if Donald Trump's top lawyers ever did come to a final conclusion about the circumstances of Ted Cruz's birth. What happened with that one? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is an alum of the number three school in the U.S. news rankings. Don't worry if you're planning on taking a meeting with him. He's socially adept and can make eye contact. In other words, his number three school wasn't the University of Chicago. The gist. I've been working on a jingle. Tell me what you think. You're listening to The Gist satisfies your need to know. I'm sorry. A professionally composed jingle would not sound that awful. U.S. News and World Report satisfies your need to know. U.S. News and World Report. I stand corrected. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. And if you love podcasts, you don't want to miss Now Hear This, which is a podcasting festival. In fact, I stand by my words to the extent that I will not miss Now Hear This. I will be there for the festival, not just taking in such shows as The Moth, Criminal, 
and Nate DeMeo's The Memory Palace. Perhaps I will see uh, Mark Marin talk about WTF behind the scenes or some improv. There's a couple of improv shows like Improv for Humans and Comedy Bang Bang. But the gist is going to be there as well if you're in the Anaheim area on October 28th through 30th. Our actual thing is going to be uh, the Saturday morning of the 29th. The Now Hear This Festival is a great way to watch me do my thing in person in a slightly weird setting in a Marriott conference room. To get tickets and to see the whole lineup, go to nowhearthisfest.com. They're on sale now. You can get a whole festival ticket. And there's also the opportunity for a VIP meet and greet with your favorite hosts. I hope that includes me. So anyway, nowhearthisfest.com. And one more thing, Slate Plus. If you haven't signed up for Slate Plus, we're offering a special deal for the 20th anniversary. If you don't know what it is, you get bonus content, you get interesting information online about how things in Slate were made, you get access to events, live events earlier than other people, and we're offering a 30% discount for this annual membership. It's $35. And the last big thing, unstated, though I'll state it now, just a way to support Slate. If you love a lot of the podcasts or a lot of the content on Slate, if you're impressed that we've been doing it for 20 years, and would like to do it for, you think I'm going to say 20 more? No, 200 more. I'm thinking big. Then the $35 is a way to do it. To take advantage of the offer, go to slate.com slash plus.